So years ago, after I became a Christian, um, I had a small Bible verse guide that was given to me in college, and it organized Scripture into different kind of categories to help. So there's things like trusting God, there's some verses, you know, things on love, on joy, and so on. And I would get confused because I would see verses telling us to love God, shortly followed by those telling us to fear God. And I remember I would even put a little question mark of like, how, do you, how is it possible to do both of these things? Um, how do we fear him and love him at the same time? So these two ideas seem to be contradictory to one another. And I'm not alone in that thought, as the great philosopher Michael Scott would ask, is it better to be feared or loved? His answer in wanting people to be afraid of how much they loved him misses the mark biblically. Um, but what we will examine more today is that God is to be both feared and loved. As an overview for what we're going to talk through today, um, I've got a number of questions about the fear of God. These are going to serve as our outline points. If you're taking notes, it'd be better to write them out as we cover them. They're going to be on these awesome poster boards that my wonderful wife made. Um, so don't write them all out now as I say them, but just for the sake of overview, I want you to know what we're going through. So the first point will be, who should fear God? Next, why should we fear God? Third, what does it look like to biblically fear God? Fourth, what happens when we lose the fear of God? And lastly, how can we start to walk in the fear of God? So let's start with a clear definition of what it means to fear God. So we're all on the same page. Clear definition, which hopefully is my boom. First slide. So fear of God is a reverent submission that leads to obedient trust and worship. Reverent submission that leads to obedient trust and worship. We'll continue to dive into some of these other terms, reverence, trust, worship, but let's quickly even look at the word fear itself, make sure we're on the same page. John Piper describes the difference of fear prescribed to those who are in Christ versus those who are not. He says, there is terror outside of Christ, and there is a different kind of trembling inside of Christ. So this terror fear is not what we're looking at today, because Assuming most in the room are in Christ, that's what we're going to be looking at, is this kind of trembling, this different kind of trembling. And we're going to unpack that as we move through the rest of the teaching and looking through Scripture to help inform us. So hopefully everyone's gotten the definition. If not, I will be referring to it again, and I'll bring it back. So don't worry. First point, who should fear God? Let's consider a few verses about the fear of the Lord. So if you guys have your Bibles, if you can go to Psalm 33, and we will look at Psalm 33, verse 8. Psalm 33, verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So fearing the Lord is something everyone should do. All inhabitants, it says, all inhabitants of the earth. So if you're on the earth, you're fearing the Lord. That's, that's what you're called to do. No one is exempt from the fear of the Lord. And this fear should lead to an awe or reverence before him, to be overwhelmed. And it says, stand in awe of him, to be overwhelmed by his holy attributes. But as sin usually does, it affects us. 
So if we turn a couple chapters over to Psalm 36, and look at Psalm 36, verse 1, we see it say, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So this is an example of what lack of the fear the Lord leads to. Sin convicts and condemns, but the wicked, in their lack of fear of the Lord, become numb and their consciences are seared. Even still, despite this, we will see that all one day will come to a true fear of God. If we flip now back into the New Testament, go to Romans, and let's look at Romans 14. Romans 14, verse 11. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So in due time, everyone will fear God in one way or another at the final judgment. So the short answer to our first point, who should fear God? Everyone. We're all called to. Biblically, we see it. It is clear. Now we've covered the who. Let's go to the why. Point two, why should we fear God? We'll discuss three main reasons for why we should fear God. The first, as image bearers of the one true God, we were designed to fear God. As image bearers of the one true God, we were designed to fear God. Chris touched on this passage a couple weeks ago in his sermon, but we're going to go to Genesis 1. All the way back, Genesis 1, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27 to see how we were designed as part of that design is that we were designed to fear God. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So we were created in the image of God and meant to exercise dominion over the creation. We see this here. We were designed to live in perfect fellowship with him and devotion towards him. As we've been given his image to bear in the world. This is part of our design that we were able to carry this out in the world. So... That's part one. Part of our design, as we clearly see, second reason we should fear God is because he's intrinsically worthy of our fear and our obedience and our worship. Going back to our definition, our obedience and worship and trust. So he's intrinsically worthy of that. We see this throughout scripture that he and he alone is worthy. He alone can bear the weight of our soul's need to worship. So Going to Scripture again, let's consider his worthiness. Going back to the Psalms, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms today, in case you were curious. So if you don't really know where to go, or what I'm referring to, it's probably somewhere in the Psalter. So let's go to Psalm 2, um, and we'll read verse 10 through 11. Psalm 2, 10, and 11. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So this is at the heart of what it means to serve the Lord, is to fear him. Even our rejoicing should be with trembling. This might seem like one of those paradoxical statements. How do we rejoice and tremble? But he is so holy and he's so awesome that we can rejoice fully and freely. And we're going to continue to explore this idea as we, we work through more scripture. But this is what we're called to do. Rejoice with trembling and to serve him with fear. Once again, in Psalms, uh, flip to Psalm 89. We're going to look at verse 6, really the second half of verse 6. But So uh, Psalm 89, verse 6 and 7. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all, who are around him. He is more awesome than all that surround him, even in the heavenly places. And in further examining fear as believers, I'm helped by Ed Welch from his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, which is kind of like the overall basis of this teaching. If you haven't had a chance to read that book, I highly recommend it. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. So Ed Welch says, people are no longer driven by terror fear or fear that would do with punishment. Instead, we are blessed with worship fear the reverential all motivated by love and honor that is due to him. So this is our motivation, is this love and honor that's due to him, that worship fear. Once again, kind of almost like a paradoxical idea that we're worshiping and fearing at the same time. But this is biblically what we're called to do. We'll look at one more psalm, and then I'm going to have you guys read some stuff for me. I'll sign some stuff out so it's not just me talking up here. Let's go to Psalm 27. And let's look at first, verse 1. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When we remind ourselves that he is my light, to make it personal, he's my light leading to my salvation, my place of security for all eternity. So a stronghold is, it's somewhere that we have an established place that we have a defense waiting for us. We don't have to fear anyone or anything else because of what God has done for us and who he is. These are just a few, example, a few examples that all scripture is proclaiming the worthiness of God to be feared and worshiped. Third reason for why we should fear God, third and final, um, fearing God is for our good. It's for our good. We often hear prayers end with the phrase, for our good and your glory. So this is how Christians should think and we should pray, is that it should be for God's glory first, most importantly. That is why we do anything is for the glory of God but it's also for our good. We, we trust that God works things for our good. Thinking of Romans 8, 28. We should fear God because it's our good to do so. Um, so I have a couple verses. I just need four volunteers, four separate volunteers. I'll sign some out. So first one, Proverbs 9, 10. Who would like to read Proverbs 9, 10? Garrett, 
Um, then next, Psalm 115.11. Sean, thank you. Um, and then right next to Psalm 115, it's going to be Psalm 115.13. <laughs> Jeremy, thanks. And then lastly, Psalm 118.4. Dylan, thank you. All right, Gary, if you can start us off. Yes, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So this is where we start. This is our starting place for knowing anything, is the fear of the Lord. Um, and we get wisdom from that, wisdom and knowledge. This helps us. This helps inform us. So starting in a place of reverential fear informs what we even know and can understand. Okay? Sean? So he is there to defend for us. He is there to help us and to be a shield to those who fear him. It's pretty straightforward. A lot of these verses are just really straightforward of the benefits that we get from fearing God. Next up, Psalm 15, 13. Or 115, 115, 13, you had it right. I'm sorry, I, I messed you up. So I love this. Your status does not matter. Both the small and the great will be blessed if you fear him, if we come before this reverential all of him. And lastly, Psalm 118. We have this confidence that we know God's steadfast love endures forever for us because we stand before him and fear him. So as we read in Psalms and Proverbs, we see the fear of the Lord is intimately tied to our own happiness and our holiness. And that's important that we never divorce holiness from happiness. What I mean by that is when we walk and grow in holiness, we inevitably walk and grow in happiness. It should be a direct byproduct of growing in holiness, is that we should be more happy. Um, and we're living as we're designed to. That's the beauty of walking in holiness, and this is the joy that we get. This is a byproduct of fearing God. And in Psalms and Proverbs, as wisdom literature instruct us that a good and rational life is to live in a proper fear of the Lord. Before we go on to the next point, I just want to open up to any questions, if there's anything at all that hasn't been clear any follow-up questions? Just want to take the opportunity um, the for that now. The last psalm was Psalm 118, verse 4. Any other questions? Yeah. First reason for well, why we should fear God. As image bearers of the one true God, we were designed to fear God. So put simply, we were designed to fear God because we're image bearers. We looked at Genesis 1. Anything else? It's still early. I understand. It's kind of quiet. Okay, moving on to point number three. What does it look like biblically to fear God? And I know we've kind of already covered a lot of biblical reasons to fear God, but no surprise, there's a lot more. Um, there's so many that like, I don't think we have time for us to go through one by one. So Hopefully everyone's got this point. I have a lot of reasons with Scripture to back it up, and I'll just kind of read through them because we do not have time to go through these one by one. Um, but I at least wanted to give some clear biblical reasons 
for fearing God is presented in Scripture, for what it looks like to fear God. Yeah, feel free to take a picture of it if it's easier, and then write in your notes later. But a few examples, giving praise, listening to truth, being quiet and teachable, having an undivided heart, following his precepts, hoping in his word, understanding his statutes, standing in all of his law, walking in his ways, being humble, hating evil, and walking upright. So the the fear the Bible speaks of works itself out in the lives of people. Um, This is clear throughout Scripture. So I want to go back to our definition of what it means to fear God. So reverent submission that leads to obedient trust and worship, right? This is our, our definition that we're working off of today. The submission, obedience, trust, worship. This is one of these group interactive times. So this is, I'm going to ask you guys a question. With these terms in mind, submission, obedience, trust, worship, can anyone think of good examples of people in the Bible or even in church history who feared God more than man and give a little background for why? being in prison. That's a great example. Joseph is a great example, biblically, of fearing God. He feared God. He didn't choose to speak up and make a big argument. He trusted God even while in prison, and the Lord honored him ultimately and used him to help save the nation of Israel from famine. Good. That's a good example. Anyone else? I think of Abraham. Yeah, yeah, and going up and to the mountain, trusting that God was going to provide some sacrifice, but you know, fearing God more than his promised son that he had waited so long for, right? Yeah, that's a great example. Anyone else? Hmm? Yeah, Stephen choosing to honor God and speak his truth despite knowing the consequences of his action, being, being martyred, being stoned to death. Um, yeah, it's another great example. There's a ton of examples, so we're not going to be able to cover all of them. I have a bunch here as backup if you guys don't want to say anything. So, <laughs> Anyone else? Anything else come to mind? Yeah, Trevor. Yeah, no, it's a great example of the early church, you know, choosing to fear God. And it's not like they're living in a, a country like today, which is, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue, it depends how Christian sympathetic, but we have freedom here. We're not worried that we're going to be killed in the street 
for believing in Jesus. And yet these believers, to start establishing this church, very small, it's not like you have a bunch of support behind them, but they had the support of God and the Holy Spirit. And they chose to fear God over man in that sense. Yeah, Daniel's a great example. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to explain why? Or oh, okay, no. <laughs> I can I can help you out. I can help you out. No, no, it's a great example. That was one of my lists too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, decided to praise God even when you know they said he was going to be thrown in the fire. He's not going to partake in the, the king's meat and and drink and not to bow down to false idols. So. Um, yeah, he, he worshiped God and was fearless. How about Jesus Christ when all the stuff he could have done had all the people come up to the trial, being in the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane with the devil when he came up there to like, tempt him and everything? Mm-hmm. And he went, did all the stuff to God himself, you know, being Amen. Yeah, Jesus being the kind of the, the easy uh, example that was there waiting for us, but that it's exactly right. You know, Jesus, and we see it in detail, he chose to trust God despite the levels of temptations that were presented before him. He knew his assignment, and he knew that he was called to fear God above all else. Maybe one or two more? Yeah, David's a great example. And we see throughout so many of these psalms that we've either already read or um, going to read later, they're read by David. And we get to see him talking about fearing the Lord um, above all else. So many great examples. I appreciate you guys throwing them out there. Even I, I think of um, after you know the Bible, there's so many martyrs and people like Polycarp, people like Luther, Jim Elliott, um, if you've ever heard of Voices of Martyrs, it's a publication that is very humbling to see people living this out in real life, the fear of God in the face of persecution. Um, but we could go on and on. So we've read in Scripture, we see it in Scripture, we've thought of examples, and I think a fair question is, in light of what we've read, is why would we ever stop fearing God? And I think it's a question that we should consider in varying circumstances of our own lives. Why should we ever, why would we ever stop fearing God? Why don't we fear God as we ought to? If we were created to fear him, what's stopping us from doing so? And personally, I find my focus of fear shift in times of uncertainty. I can give an example of times at work where we either have high turnover, so I'm thinking like, who is going to replace this person? I don't know what's going to happen. Um, or if we have disagreements with the departments, I don't know how it's going to work out. I might have to go get another job. And being helped by a gospel treason, which we studied this past spring, in those circumstances, my functional theology, so how I live, becomes feelings-based, which Elias talked about that 
in the previous teaching, how we can become feelings-based. My confessional theology, what I say I believe, um, what I say I believe is I trust God as sovereign in all circumstances. But that fades to the background. So my confessional theology fades, my practical and my functional theology moves to the foreground. And I exchange God's truth, walking by sight, relying upon myself, and choosing to fear lesser things of the world, whether it's failure, reputation. And this leads to the wrong kind of fear. This leads to the fear of man, and this is the basis of what we're studying. I'm helped by a former pastor of mine from Tampa, Justin Perry. He says, fear, so this improper fear, fear is meant to bring distrust in what you've been wrongly trusting in. When you trust him, when you trust God, you don't fear lesser things. So biblically, let's think back to the scene of Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. Humans initiated the first great exchange. I gave an example of an exchange that I made, but humans initiated the first great exchange. We, as Paul says in Romans 1, 23, exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And what is the result of this exchange we made? The fear of God is lost, which that is our fourth point. What happens when we lose the fear of God? Genesis 3 clearly tells us, and Chris also touched on this passage as well. Um, We're going to look at it in light of fear of God today. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 7. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we don't want to read this merely as meaning that Adam and Eve suddenly realized they weren't wearing any clothes. Verse 7 is telling us that Adam and Eve are now spiritually dead. This is the account of a tragedy. They have gone from the pinnacle of creation who alone were able to worship and experience communion with the triune God to being physically alive and cut off from God. They now deeply fear being exposed by God. They're hiding. They went from enjoying his presence to now being ashamed in his presence that quickly. Creation was good, but at the fall, man's rebellion against God, everything changed. Everything changed. After the fall, Adam and Eve chose to give up the perfect fear of the Lord, and they learned a new fear of the Lord, the fear of his wrath and his judgment. Man was thrown into fear of other men. They were afraid of one another, a fear of rejection and exposure and physical harm. When we give up a proper fear of the Lord, we have no choice but to fear others. When we give up a proper fear of the Lord, we have no choice to fear others. It's not as though there's a middle ground between not fearing the Lord and not fearing people. When we give up a right fear of the Lord, we're making a claim to be like God, to know better, to demand what's ours, and to take his seat on the throne. We're saying, God, hey, thanks. Yeah, you're kind of worth my trust, but I I know what's better for me. I'm I'm going to actually, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to dwell and think about these other things. I, I want to figure this out on my own. And that's a claim we have to defend, to take his seat on the throne. And the reality is no one can. 
Not only have Adam and Eve alienated themselves from God, but they've alienated themselves from each other. The very intimacy which they were created to enjoy in marriage has been shattered. Their nakedness has brought about a fear of rejection. I'm sure everybody is familiar with fear of rejection at some point in their lives today. This rejection is so deep that will lead the image bearers to fear that other people will actually physically harm us, as we heard about you know, from Elias touched on that two weeks ago. Instead of giving life, the image bearers will turn on each other as we see the first act of murder as Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis 4.8. So it's important for us to see the fall for the cataclysmic event that it is. It changes everything. And the scriptures are now the creature, excuse me, the creatures are now naked and exposed. They are living, but they're spiritually dead. They have fundamentally lost what it means to be human. And this is the very beginning of the narrative of Scripture. You must get a sense of the desolate place the earth suddenly becomes when the image bearers in the garden reject the good and righteous king of the garden and instead assert their own rule. It's desperately tragic. But God, in his grace, promises redemption. And this is what we desperately need. Jesus Christ brings the redemption our hearts seek. In sin, we live subhuman lives. Jesus Christ comes and lives the fully human life. He fears, the God. He fears God the Father perfectly. He does, not, he does what we were created to do. He does not sin. Just as in Adam, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ and his perfection, those who repent and believe, we are righteous. In Genesis 3, we see Moses uses the language of nakedness. Just as we are naked as sinners before God, so in Christ we are clothed in righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ as his righteousness is imputed to us through justification. So just as we stripped ourselves of the unmarred image in the fall, through the gracious redemption achieved through Christ, we are clothed anew in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And his death and resurrection makes it possible for those who repent and believe to begin fearing God in the way we were originally designed to fear him. That's what we're trying to get back to. We're trying to get back to the pre-fall fear of God, where it's this right relationship of trust. There's reverential awe standing before God as this is God and his unbelievable attributes, but there's a trust there. It's not a fear that we have to go run and hide in the bushes that's not what we're called to be. Even in our sin, we know that there's no condemnation for us now in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1. So as we walk this out in our lives, it's important that we rely on what Christ has done on our behalf, that this is our new identity, and that we walk in this identity. Dwelling on these truths will free you from living the subhuman life of improper fear that we easily give ourselves over to. It should be to our greatest amazement that the God who knows every wicked word, deed, and thought we've had is the same God who sacrificed himself on the cross to save us. Who he is and what he's done is infinitely more valuable, precious, and worthy of our trust and praise. So let's get a little bit more practical here. How do we begin... Put on the fear of God. 
I have three ways. There's many more. How do we begin to put on the fear of God? It's important to know that only a greater fear will displace a lesser fear. Our main concern should not be finding solutions to our fear of man, but instead seeking after a deeper fear of the Lord. It's really important, so I'll say that again. Our main concern should not be finding solutions to our fear of man, but instead seeking after a deeper fear of the Lord. If you leave this class feeling less controlled by what others think of you, but with no greater fear of God, you've missed it. You've missed it. So how do we put on the fear of the Lord every day? Here are three ways. The first, meditate on the gospel. The Bible, or excuse me, the battle each day begins when we wake up. We must bring our hearts and minds on the reality of the gospel. God has graciously acted through Christ to restore sinners to himself. The king has come. The king reigns. We no longer have to be subjects of the ruler of the kingdom of this world, Satan. Through Christ, we are subjects of the good king. Meditate on and believe the gospel and what it accomplishes on your behalf. I don't know what this looks like for you personally, how you meditate. For me, meditating means taking time, setting time aside to dwell undistracted. We live in a world full of distractions constantly. Our phones going off. I'm sure since you've been here, you've probably gotten texts. You've probably gotten certain messages. Find ways to minimize distractions and rid yourself of distraction. Take time to truly meditate on, on the gospel. I mean, does it truly change your heart thinking about even what we just discussed? The reality that God, who knows all your sin, saved you and sacrificed himself on your behalf. Does that stir anything in you? Does that change your mindset, especially in times of complaints and times of trials? Does that, does that do anything for you? Are you truly meditating and stewing on what the gospel means for your life in every single aspect of your life? It's important. Second, we must study the character of God. God is glorious and is worthy of our fear. The knowledge of God is the greatest knowledge you can, you can possess. He is perfectly good in every way. His ways are high above our ways. His thoughts are high above our thoughts, as Isaiah says. He can be trusted. Do not listen to the lies of your flesh that accuse God of being less than he really is. That's what a lot of lies are. Try to convince us throughout the day and going back to the fall. Did God really say that? Can you really trust him? Are you sure that that fruit's really going to do that? No, no, it's not what it is. We have to be aware of this. If we know God's character, we don't give in to lies. We're not deceived because we know who God is. And we become more conformed to his character and we rightly grow in that fear. Not an exhaustive list, but the God of the Bible is revealed as holy, majestic, sovereign, omnipotent, so all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, always present, merciful, kind, faithful, loving, jealous, just and wrathful. As you study the word, are you recognizing these characteristics? 
from recognition, we have to move to then dwelling on them to further deepen our reverence for God in all aspects of our lives. If you like books, a helpful book, apart from Scripture, that is helpful in providing a good starting place to knowing and understanding God better is, is Knowing God by G.I. Packer. Um, if you haven't had a chance to read that, I would highly recommend it. It's very helpful for understanding its characteristics of God and helping grow in our reverential awe. Third and final point, we must repent of pride. We must repent of pride. Our pride goes deeper than any of us could ever imagine. Pride is rooted in the very fabric of our beings as rebels against God. We have to learn to doubt our own desires and to trust God. Helped by J.C. Ryle, who says, There is no ignorance so common and so mischievous as our ignorance of ourselves. Oh, our pride goes so deep. We have to renounce it. It completely distorts reality as it tempts us to make much of ourselves and so very little of the sovereign God. So often we can just be focused in on our needs and our problems, and Elias talked on this, and when we get into this idea of what we're owed and what we've earned and our needs and how they're not being met, we're not thinking about God. We're just thinking about ourselves. If we can rightly remember what we've talked about today and talked about this idea of God's character and meditating on the gospel, that alone will help us start rooting out this pride. But we have to be looking for it. We have to be looking for pride in our lives and to kill it with humility. And humility comes from coming before God and recognizing who we are before him. We are small before God. And that awe, that reverential awe that we talked about in our definition should help grip us. Helped again by Ed Welch from When People Are Big and God Is Small. This is one of the great blessings of the fear of the Lord. We think less often about ourselves. When a heart is being filled with the greatness of God, there is less room for the question, what are people going to think of me? To fear God is to reverentially submit to him in such a way that leads to obedience and worship. It is to obey him happily and joyfully. To fear God is the beginning of wisdom. God alone can bear the weight of your deepest longings. He alone can receive the worship you were created to give. This is who he is. He is worthy of our trust.